The Obald by Robert McMinn Chapter 15 Wednesday, 16th of November Though his aches and pains were no worse on Wednesday morning, they were no better. Ronnie decided not to go to work, not least because he feared that the raid the night before had been more to do with him than with Melody. He wasn't sure whether he'd ever dare show his face in the office again. The surveillance team outside the midwinter house had plenty of time to register his present, make a note of his number plate. He decided to put off the decision about going back to work till he'd been to the meeting on Thursday. He phoned the switchboard at 7.30 and spoke to Nibs, who had already realised he wasn't coming in. It always feels worse on the second day, was all Nibs had to say. Ronnie guessed the statement could apply to almost any situation. Nibs said he'd let Mooney's know that Ronnie had called in, then complained that he had too much work to do because he had no help. Rather than going back to bed, Ronnie got dressed and did some tidying up before settling down to a late breakfast. At nine, he went out to a payphone and tried calling the number Melody had given him on the church leaflet, even though she'd told him not to use it. There was no reply. Back home, he'd used directory inquiries to find out the number for Douglas and Graham, the solicitor's office where she was supposed to work. Again, there was no reply. He was out of ideas for contacting Melody and saw just one remaining op. At 10 o'clock, he phoned the department and asked Rowena to put him through to Mel. She sounded both cautious and depressed when she picked up. It was unusual for people at her grade to receive any phone calls. Everyone within earshot would know it was a personal call and personal calls were strictly forbidden. An unauthorised use of government equipment. Hello? Mel, it's Ronnie. You're not in. No, I'm calling from home. It's terrible, isn't it? What is? He thought perhaps she was asking about his pain, his ostensible reason for being off work. But what she said didn't make sense. He asked her again. What's terrible? Didn't you hear the news? What news? He's dead. Nothing was making sense. She appeared to be talking in code. Who was he? Who was dead? Ronnie decided on another tack. Listen, he said, I've been trying to get hold of Melody. Well, you wouldn't be able to, not now. Not after what's happened. What's happened? There was no getting away from it. Clearly there was something she wanted to say but couldn't say within earshot of others in the office on a work phone. Turn on the local news. She hung up without saying more. Exasperated, Ronnie went to his portable kitchen radio and tuned it into the local commercial station, Chilton. After impatiently enduring 20 minutes of easy listening music and advertising, including local celebrity Paul Young's cover of Wherever I Lay My Hat and Phil Collins' cover of You Can't Hurry Love, he finally heard a news bulletin. Local resident and environmental activist Michael Midwinter had been found dead following an aggravated burglary at his home. Ronnie couldn't process the news. How did this tie in with the raid at the factory? Were the two events connected? How could burglars have targeted someone whose house was under such close surveillance? Where was Melody?
Where were his tapes? His concern for his multi-track tapes was relegated to minor status in the light of the news about Midwinter's death, but it was a niggle in the back of his mind that he couldn't shake off. He phoned the office again, and Rowena begrudgingly put him through to Mel. You've got to stop using the phone, she said, clearly more on top of events and more aware of risks than he was. Sorry, last time. I need to get in touch with our friend. Can you pass a message? I'm going to London with her tonight. What? Why? I'm going to show her where I think it is, she hissed. She hung up again. There were too many things Ronnie didn't understand. Why would Melody need Mel to show her something in London? Why would Melody be going to London on the night after her father had been killed? Why wasn't she running? He sat at the kitchen table, with his head in his hands, trying to work it all out. He decided to try to meet them at the train station, to go with them to London. He spent the rest of the day feeling unsettled and jumpy, trying to occupy his mind by attempting to make notes on the tracks they'd be mixing at the weekend, if they could get the tapes off Melody. At 3.30, he drove to the train station, parking in the more expensive multi-storey close by. It was 5 to 4 when he reached the platform used for the London trains. He sat down to wait for the two Mel's, assuming that they'd be coming as soon as Mel could get off work. A train came and went. At 4.25, as it grew dark, he saw Mel's familiar legs on the far side of an advertising hoarding. He stood up, but something stopped him from approaching her when he caught sight of Melody, whose facial expression was frighteningly blank. She was carrying her handbag and a briefcase, which looked to be heavy. A train pulled into the platform. He saw them get on, then left the waiting room where he'd been sitting and got on a carriage behind. This was the same train at the same time of day he and Mel had caught the previous Friday. It barely reached top speed, trundling too slowly through the countryside and then through the outskirts of the city. Ronnie counted on being able to follow the two women unobtrusively when it reached St Pancras. The only thing he could think of that Mel knew, and that Melody didn't, was the approximate location of the computer data centre, the one her ex-boyfriend Paul worked in. He remembered her saying it was near the British Museum. He assumed they might be going there, on foot rather than by tube, if the nearest tube station was Russell Square, which was only one stop away from King's Cross. The train pulled into St Pancras. Before it had properly stopped, Ronnie reached through the open window, opened the door and stepped off the train, moving directly to a nearby rubbish bin where he crouched down to tie his shoelaces. He looked down the length of the train and saw that the two Mel's were already walking towards the ticket collector. He got to his feet and followed. They headed to the corner near the pub and went down the steps into the tube station. Ronnie hurried to catch up. When he reached the bottom of the steps, they were already queuing for a ticket. He loitered for a moment, then joined the queue behind them, counting on the fact that they wouldn't look back once they'd got their tickets. He was just one place behind and bought a ticket for Zone 1, then headed towards the Piccadilly line, which he guessed would be the one they'd take. The southbound platform was crowded, but he could see them, standing not too far away, one blonde, the other brunette, both around the same height, 
both wearing black. He couldn't see their faces, but he saw that Melody was slightly leaning on Mel and that Mel was now the one carrying the briefcase. At one point, Melody moved her head to touch Mel's head, as if seeking comfort and sympathy. Before he had time to worry what that meant, a train came into the station. The two Mel's got on, and Ronnie boarded one door further down. There were no seats available, but he didn't want to sit down anyway, preferring to position himself so he could easily reach the door. He was expecting the women to get off at Russell Square, and when the train stopped, he stepped out of the door to check this assumption. There was no sign of them. He was nearly carried along by the force of the crowd leaving the train, but managed to hold his ground. Then he got back on, nervously trying to maintain line of sight with the exit in case they got off at the last moment. The doors closed and the train headed off. At Holborn, he got off again, and this time saw the two males walking towards the way out sign. Ronnie followed at a distance, hurrying whenever they were out of sight round a corner. He followed them up the first set of escalators to the central line level, but lost them in the crowd at the bottom of the escalators to street level. He went up anyway, craning his neck to see through the bodies blocking his way, and then hoping to catch them again on the street. Once through the barriers, he ran for the exit onto High Holborn, but could see no sign of them. He ran round the corner onto Kingsway, but still couldn't see them. His heart was pounding in his chest. They were gone, disappeared, just as Mel had disappeared at Leicester Square on their first trip to the NFT. He turned back into High Holborn and crossed the road at the lights on the corner, continuing his walk north, still looking ahead to see if he could see them. In his mind, he was either heading for Russell Square or the British Museum, the place Mel had mentioned to him the previous week. As he reached the next junction, he stopped short, unsure which way to go. Ahead was Southampton Row and Russell Square. To his left was Bloomsbury. To his right, Theobald's Road. He didn't move. The sign for Theobald's Road made him think of the evening he'd sat on the bench in the town square, waiting for Mel's bus, looking across the street at the neon sign in the sewing machine shop after she'd left. They'd gone. He'd lost them. His legs started to wobble as he reacted to the stress of the last 48 hours. There was nothing more he could do other than aimlessly wander the streets or stand waiting at the middle of Holborn Station, hoping they'd return to where he'd last seen them. That would be as pointless as it had been when he'd waited for Mel at Leicester Square. He decided to head home and walked on towards Russell Square Station where he could catch a tube back to St Pancras. His body ached all over. He was tired and felt lost, bereft, lonely. He passed a phone box and wished he could just phone Mel up to speak to her about how lonely he was. <laughs>